0: You passed by me in the hallway today and asked how I'm doing. I answered, but I didn't tell you the truth. For you see, I I make sure when I walk into this building that I have a smile upon my face. But the smile is there to mask the sadness that's inside. I walk in here and I sing the songs of praises. They, They leave my lips yet. They never reach my heart. I I give, but it's not out of joy or worship. It's just another routine. I sit in the pews and I listen to the pastor speak. But I'm, I'm not listening to the words. And I know that all around me, there are needs that people have. But I'm so broken inside, I don't even know how to help them. So if I were to be honest with you and with myself, I could sum how I am feeling with one word. Overwhelmed. I am overwhelmed. There's just so much going on in my life right now. There's the pressure that I feel at work. There's the time I always feel I need to spend at home. And there's... All this stuff that my family is involved in. And if my family is involved with it, we are going to do it well. We're going to do it with excellence. And if we don't meet these goals of excellence that I have for my family, I, I just feel like it's going to fall apart. And I, I just sit there sometimes wondering, how am I going to keep up with all this? How am I going to keep it all together? And honestly, my faith never interacts with that part of my life. I I just think sometimes there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more to this following Jesus than these external rituals that we have. that, That church is more than just an agenda that we mark off the list. I I go through this building, and I hear people talk about their faith, and they use terms like peace, comfort. And currently, those terms are foreign to me. It's, It's like church has become just another burden on my life. And I feel this weight... That's upon me to be this good Christian. But I like the power that's talked about in the Bible. I I believe in Jesus. I do. I'm I'm just so overwhelmed. And I don't know how to trust him with that part of my life. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of
1: Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to turn there in just a moment, but I want to start by talking about a little pop culture reference and ask you a question to see how 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 up-to-date you are with current kind of pop culture and television specifically. And so I wonder if you know what the uh, most watched show is on television for the ages. And now this is why it's important, because television people like to know how many people watch something, but they specifically want to know. How many people in a specific demographic watch something? How many people know what the number one show is for adults age 18 to 40? First of all, how many of you are an adult age 18 to 49 or would like to be? How many years is that? All right, we got a few good youth, a few a little older, right? 18 to forty-nine. Anybody know the number one show, most watched show for 18 to 49-year-olds, that prized demographic in our country? Anybody know what it is? None of those Seinfeld, This Is Us. None of those, eighteen to forty-nine. It is this. All right. Let's see some. Let me just tell you, that's not the reaction I got in the first service. There were no. Although we did find out, Miss Pat Langford and the Garretts are huge Walking Dead fans. All right. Um, so the Walking Dead is the number one show on television now. Um, I'm I've, 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 just a disclaimer. I've never watched The Walking Dead. Now I give that disclaimer for two reasons. First of all, sometimes I will mention something on stage, and people will go, "Well, I'm going to go check that out." The pastor mentioned it, and they'll come back like, "You shouldn't be watching that, pastor." Well, I haven't. All right, okay, I haven't watched it. Okay, so I just want you to know that. Secondly, there are some of you here that uh, what do they call Walking Dead fans? Deadheads. Uh, walkers, I don't know what, whatever you are, you're a Walking Dead fan, and I'm going to mention something, then the, some point, and it's going to be wrong, and you're like, I can't even listen to the rest of his sermon, because he got the Walking Dead information wrong, all right? And so I tell you that, I've never seen an episode, although someone has filled me in on the basic plot line of every episode, if you're not aware, The Walking Dead is a story of Walking Dead, zombies, and others that are not zombies, that are trying to remain not zombies, Right? And the basic plot line I've heard, this is heard, haven't seen, the heard is from the show is, there's something we really need, and we've got to get it now, but it's over there where the zombies are. And we have to go get it where the zombies are and get it back, all right? And so um, it's just fascinating to me that the number one show on television is a show about zombies. And zombies are kind of the horror genre of choice these days. People are into that. How many of you here watch The Walking Dead? I'm not going to judge you. Your neighbor might, but I won't, all right? More than the first service, all right? I saw some hands like here, like I don't want to admit it in church, but I, I have, all right? Uh, it's the horror genre of choice, number one, and number five overall. So in all people, I mean, that, and you got to count the NCIS is up there, in there, all right? Number five overall, number one in that prize demographic. And I began to ask the question, why? Why are people so fascinated with the idea of a zombie apocalypse? There's a social commentator by Chuck, named Chuck Klosterman, who wrote in the New York Times, and I just think this is insightful for our generation. He says so many of us are appealed or have a reason to like zombie shows because it talks and correlates to how we feel in our daily lives. We have this seemingly endless onslaught by mindless emails and advertisements and pop-up ads and tweets and voicemails. We have to eliminate them one by one or else we'd be consumed by them. I'm already dreading myself tomorrow morning. I've been on vacation for a week. I'm going to walk into my office and I dread opening the mail app on my computer. Because I know I'm going to spend an hour just delete, delete, delete. Zombies are basically moving bodies without souls. And they mimic the actions of being alive, but they're not. And this social commentator, Chuck Klosterman, says that for many of us, we have this feeling in our lives that we're just going through the motions. We're just attempting to fulfill our duties. We're just checking the items off of our list. But there's no real life. There's no real soul. There's no real passion involved in what we're doing. Today, we're going to start a new series, and we're calling it Dead Orthodoxy. Now, you might be going, you may have seen that on Facebook and be like, what in the world is dead orthodoxy? What are you talking about? Here's how I want to explain it to you, all right? I read recently that in a survey by Gallup that three out of four Americans say they believe in God. And seven in ten actually say that they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, sent by God for us. But when you look at the statistics outside of what people say they believe, something doesn't add up. Because seven out of ten people are not living as if they truly believe Jesus has risen from the grave. Seven out of ten people do not actually live out a faith that is demonstrated by what Jesus taught. And while the majority of Americans believe in God, the truth is many of them, and if we're honest, many of us live as if God doesn't exist at all. That's what dead orthodoxy is. Orthodoxy just means belief or right belief in this idea. It's orthodox. It is the correct belief. It is the correct understanding. Now we have a lot of people that say they believe the right things, but there is no evidence in their lives. Someone who believes in God or says they do, but they don't live as if God exists. People that call themselves Christians and yet live as if Jesus doesn't matter in their lives. There are two verses I thought about specifically as I was thinking through this series, as I was thinking through what we're going to do over the next few weeks. First one is in Titus chapter 1, verse 16. This is Paul writing to a young pastor, and he says to beware of some people that will be in his churches, the people that will be in the group that would say that they're followers of Jesus. He says they claim to know God. They claim that they have an understanding of him. They claim that they believe in God, but they deny him by the way they live. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Now, that is some serious, serious words to say about people that claim they are followers of God. Unfit, disobedient, and detestable. Writing to another young pastor, Timothy, kind of his son in ministry, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, But know this. Hard times will come in the last days. And we need to understand that when he says last days there, he's talking about now. Not because we think Jesus is necessarily coming back any time, although he could. It, the last days just mean any time from when Jesus rose again from the grave until he comes again in the second coming. Any time in between that is the second or are the last days. And he says hard times are going to come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, Disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Doesn't that sound like a fun crew? And then he adds this at the end. And you have to understand, in biblical listing, oftentimes the first and the last share an important place. He says... Holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. What he's saying is these aren't people. All that list you just read are not people that are claiming they don't know God. These are people that say they believe the same things that you believe, but their lives do not demonstrate it at all. They hold the form of godliness without the power. So over the next three weeks, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about those areas of our lives that it's very easy for us to say we believe in God, but not live as if we do. Today, we're going to focus on how we can say that we believe in God, but cannot trust him completely. Matthew chapter six, we're going to be looking at verse twenty five through twenty four, and we're going to talk about anxiety. We're going to talk about worry. We're going to talk about things that show that we don't trust God as we ought. As I was thinking about this week, I was reminded of the story of a guy that some of you may know, some of you may have heard about, some of you may have read about, but it's just a fascinating story. The guy's name is Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes, anybody know who Howard Hughes was? Anybody know that name? Big time businessman. He dabbled in oil entertainment, aviation, Made him billions of dollars. And this is when billions of dollars was like trillions of dollars. What you would think is somebody with that kind of money, somebody with that kind of luxury, would be able to live with ease and tranquility. A person sitting by the pool, sipping drinks with little umbrellas sticking out of them. But that's not what happened with Howard Hughes. The last 25 years of his life, Hughes was the poster child for worry and anxiety. Overwhelmed by an unsubstantiated fear that people were out to get him, he spent his last decade living in hotels, and when he'd go to a hotel, he would rent out the entire floor. Those close to him said that he would spend hours and days in a room that was black, completely pitch dark. He would have refused to allow anyone to come in. In fact, if you were going to come in, he had specific instructions for you. You had to take several tissues, cover the doorknob with them, knock, open the door ever so slightly, have a short conversation with him in the pitch black, and that was all you got. He was deathly afraid of germs. His worry led to severe stomach problems. He caused him to sit in the bathroom for hours at a time. In fact, one aide noted that there was one occasion when Howard Hughes, one of the richest men on earth, sat in the bathroom for 27 straight hours. On the rare occasion that Hughes would venture out, he gave specific instructions to his driver. Only smooth roads do we be taken. You could not go past 35 miles an hour. If they had to cross railroad tracks or a specific part of the road that was bumpy, you had to go two miles an hour. He was so afraid of a wreck. And for a man who seemed to have it all, worry and anxiety dominated his life. The overwhelming paradox of Hughes was the more successful he got, the more money he accrued, the more worry and anxiety festered in his soul. It's the same thing we face. We think if we could just get a little more of this or a little more of that, if I could a little more money on a bank account, if I could have a nicer car, if I could get a better job, if I could land that one client, if I could land that one job, if I could just get married, if I could just have kids, if I could just have another kid, if I could just get that one thing, everything would be better. But the truth is, our lives, the more stuff we get, the more worry that comes along with it. That's a great place to amen, by the way. Matthew chapter 5. I mean, chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Read this with me. It's Jesus' instructions on worry. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns. They go to work from 8 to 3 every day or 9 to 7. They don't put stuff in savings accounts and checking accounts and annuities and IRAs and college funds. Yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they are? Can any of you add one moment to his life span by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God closed the grass of the field, which is here today, thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. You know what's interesting about that teaching of Jesus on worry? I mean, we all see that. We all know that. We all know that worry is not good for us. We understand that worry is something we shouldn't do. But what's interesting about what Jesus does here is he ties it immediately in the Sermon on the Mount, this whole section about worrying, directly to a section on materialism and possessions and how we treat what we have. He follows up a lesson on materialism with a lesson on worrying. Because Jesus understood that the more money you have, the more problems you have. The more worry you have, the more tendency you have. Henry Ford said later in his life when he was an automobile tycoon that he was happier when he was just being a mechanic. Multi-millionaire Andrew Carnegie once observed that millionaires seldom smile. The idea is the more we have, the more we worry. Solomon, who some came to be the richest man in human history, says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I got silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I required men and women singers. I had a harem, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Things, earthly treasures, people, relationships, they don't eliminate worry. They serve to heighten. And this is the greatest problem we often have as Americans, we don't see the fact that the riches we have been given by God, that when we turn them on to themselves, bring worry and anxiety into our lives when we don't trust him. Americans are the most stressed and anxious people that have ever lived, and they're the most blessed people that have ever lived. Seventy three percent of Americans specifically worry about money. 70% worry about their jobs. 33% will suffer job burnout in the near future. There's some of you here today really worried about something. Something at school, something at work, something in your family, something in your life. I in mean, my own life, if I'm not careful, worry becomes just a mantra for me, something that I deal with on a regular basis. My kids, I worry about them. I worry about their innocence. I worry about the world they're growing up in. I worry about their grades. I worry about funding my, college, my kids' college education. Have you seen the prices on college lately? Susan and I may have to go back to that 600-square-foot apartment we had when we were first married in order to afford college for our kids. I worry about my kids' spiritual health. I worry about your spiritual health. I worry about my sermon every day of every week. The reality is that uh, I'm going to show up on Sunday and somewhere around 400 people are going to be here to hear. And they're expecting to hear a word that God has given to me to preach during the week. So even when I'm in Florida on vacation on a beach, I realize that Sunday's coming. I worry about my own health. I worry that one day I will burn out and lose the love for what I have to do here in this church. What about you? What do you worry about? What divides your attention from heavenly things to earthly things? What gets your attention? What causes you to stress? What causes you to worry? You see, Jesus understands that worry is a universal problem. He is emphatic when he talks about it. He commands us not to worry. In fact, he does it three times in this passage. He doesn't suggest it. He doesn't think it's a good idea. He commands it. Do not worry. And he gives us three reasons why worry is bad. And the first is this, because it is inherently selfish. He specifically talks about um, being anxious in verses 25 and 26, that one of the major problems at the end of the day, my worries, my anxieties are about me and my world and my desires and my longings and my kingdom and what I want. There's generally in worry very little about self-sacrifice or laying down one's rights for another. One pastor said, worry is the fruit of a narcissistic, me-centered life. In a variety of ways, sometimes you think you've got to have a certain kind of lifestyle or go on certain kinds of vacations or live in a nicer neighborhood or have your kids in a better school or a better district or enjoy amenities in life that you think that everyone else around you. They used to call it keeping up with the Joneses, but the Joneses don't really exist because we try to keep up with the Instagram and Facebook profiles that people put up of the best days of their lives. And we try to attain that at all times. So you say, well, I'm not worried about that kind of stuff. I'm just trying to make sure that I've got somewhere to eat or that I'm going to have to pay the rent. And I don't know how that's going to come. But you're not praying about it. You're just trying to figure it out on your own. Or maybe your kids are struggling in a certain area and you're trying to figure it out on your own. You're trying to work out a plan on your own instead of trusting the Lord in the midst of it. And so the first problem is it's usually me-centered. The second thing that's wrong with worry that Jesus tells about in verse 27 is that worry is absolutely useless. It does nothing. He says, how many of you can add a day to your life? How many of you can add a moment to your life, a second to your life by worrying? I saw this statistics this week. I think it's just, it's interesting. Forty percent of the things we worry about never happen. Forty percent. Thirty percent of things we worry about are things that happened in the past that we can't Change. of what we worry about relates directly to our health, which is ironic because research has proven that worry is one of the worst things you can do for your health. And 8% of your worry is legitimate. But here's the thing. Even if it's legitimate, you can't change it by worrying. Your worry is not going to make the loan go through. Your worry is not going to get rid of cancer. Your worry is not going to pay the bills. Jesus is telling you your worry is useless. And then there's one last problem with worry. Not only is it me-centered and useless, it is the way someone acts when they do not know God. It's symptomatic of how unbelievers act. Verse 32 says, for the Gentiles, and I know right now that's a lot of us, but in this context what he meant were the pagans, the people that aren't believers in God, run after those things. Jesus is saying that the lives of those who couldn't care about God at all are dominated by pursuit for earthly treasure and the worry that comes with that. And when you and I worry about our jobs, we worry about our health, we worry about our money, we worry about our mortgage loans, we worry about our kids' schools, we worry about our cars, we worry about our clothes. We're acting like those who don't believe in God. We're committing dead orthodoxy. Where we say we believe in a God who cares and loves and has compassion for us and wants what's best for us, but we don't act as if we truly believe that. And So the question becomes, if worry is so bad for us, how do we live without it? If you've got your Bibles open, turn back to Proverbs chapter 3. Some of you won't even need to turn there because you're going to know these two verses by heart. They're two of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. But Proverbs chapter 3 gives us the anecdote and how we ought to live for the Lord. With complete trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him and he will make your paths straight. Now here's the truth, many of you have memorized that in a different version and maybe it's the trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. But the meaning is there for the same thing, that if we're going to live our lives in a way that gives evidence and glory to what God has done and who we believe Him to be then we do it by trusting in the Lord with all our heart. We don't rely on our own understanding, we acknowledge Him in everything we do. And we follow the path that he makes straight. You want to know how to live without worry? You simply have to let go and trust him. There's a writer and a priest named Henry Nowen that was uh, fascinated in the last year of his life with a group of trapeze artists called the Flying Rodleys. I think we got a picture of trapeze artists here. Anybody here ever done trapeze stuff? No hands. Anybody here ever want to do trapeze stuff? A couple of people, all right. And so here's the thing, you know, you've got the person that's, that's letting go and flying, right? It's called the flyer right there. And this guy, this priest, became really fascinated with the Rodley's flyer. There's something about his courage, about the soaring, the trusting, the dependence on one another. One day, he decided to sit with the flyer of the Rodleys and say, Tell me about it. What does it require? What does it take to have that kind of courage? And He said, this is what he said, As a flyer, I must have complete trust in the catcher. The public might think that the star of the trapeze is the flyer, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there with me with a split-second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him in a long jump. So Nowen said, well, how does it work? And Rodley said, the secret is, is that the flyer does absolutely nothing. And the catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, I simply have to reach out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me safely over the apron behind the catch bar. Nowen said, you do nothing? Nothing, he said. The worst thing a flyer can do is try to catch the catcher. I'm not supposed to catch Joe. Joe's supposed to catch me. If I tried to grab his wrist, or I might break them or he might break mine, and that would be the end for both of us. As a flyer, I must fly, and a catcher must catch. All I'm required to do is to trust with outstretched arms that he'll be there for me when I need him. Our part is to trust and surrender and give up our lives. God's part is to catch us. To hold on. To get me in any place when I can't do for myself. He is the one that takes me through. Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. and all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. That short couple of verses tells us so much about what it means to live with true faith. First of all, it tells us that we are to trust the Lord with our whole heart. With all of it. In Hebrew, the word heart didn't mean just the lovey-dovey, emotional, feely kind of thing that we've turned it into. The heart was the seat of where you made decisions. It was the seat of will. It was the seat of intellect. It was the mind as we think of it. And what he says is that we trust the Lord with a decision. We make a decision to trust Him. That we say in our mind, this is something I'm going to do. And even though I don't understand how it's going to work, even though I have lots of concerns, I'm going to make a decision to trust the Lord in this moment. It takes, and I love this word. That's not going to be a word many of you are going to use in everyday life, but I love this word. It means a total capitulation of your heart. Tomorrow you can go to the water cooler and say... Man, I, we talked about capitulation yesterday at church. It was awesome. They're going to go, who are you, right? You know what capitulation means? It means complete surrender. Capitulation to God. It's the act of trusting. Not something that's naive or something that's not um, uh, something that you can depend on. It's trusting the most dependable being in the universe. But it's a total commitment of your will. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. He doesn't accept half-hearted. He doesn't accept partial-hearted. He doesn't accept a little-hearted. He accepts all your hearts. I ask the question today, what are you holding back from trusting the Lord with? What are you holding back from trusting the Lord with? What in your life, in your family, in your job, in your work, in your spiritual life, what are you holding back? Do you remember the guy that came to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I mean, I got this problem. I need to go home and bury my dad. Anybody remember that story? What did Jesus tell the guy? Hey, man, that's cool. Go back and bury your dad. Then come on. Is that what he says? What does he say? Let the dead bury the dead. Now, when that's one of those things, when you read it, you're like, man, Jesus, that was. That was rough, man. Let the dead bury it. Man, this guy's got a dead father, right? I mean. Have a little compassion here. So we don't understand what's actually happening here because for the guy to ask that question means that the dad wasn't dead yet because in their society when someone died you buried them that day. What he was saying to Jesus is, Jesus, man, I'd really love to follow you. but I think you're a cool dude, and man, your teaching's great. I'd love to be one of these guys that follows you. But here's the problem. Like, I'm a little insecure right now because, like, my dad is still alive. And when he dies, man, I'm going to get, like, his inheritance, and, like, I'll be set for life. And so that would be a good time for me to come follow you. Because once I have all of his money, like, he's dead, and I've buried him, and the inheritance comes to me, then I can walk with you because I'm not going to have to worry about how my life's going to be taken care of. Jesus says, no, don't wait to get set up before you start to follow. You make a decision here and now. What about you? What is it that subconsciously or consciously you said to Jesus, you know what? Man, I really do. I want to follow you. I want to do what you want to do. But there's just this one thing, man. This is one thing I got to take care of. See, because not only is it a conscious decision to trust, it is also a decision to be completely devoted. I mean, there's an acknowledgement there, man. I don't Jesus. I do not know the best way for me, and I'm going to trust you with that. I'm not going to try to figure it out. I'm not going to try to map it out. I'm not going to try to come up with 14 ways that this problem could be solved. I'm going to trust you because my ways, my ways are not as good as yours. I'm not going to lean on my own understandings, but I'm going to acknowledge you in everything I do. You see, at the heart of this decision to trust him is this decision to acknowledge Christ and to show Christ in every aspect of your life. In all your ways, acknowledge him, know him. One pastor says, I don't believe we know anything of the life of faith unless we relate every moment of our life to the Lord Jesus. Whether it's going to the grocery to buy a pound of tomatoes, whether it happens to be cooking breakfast, it's facing the business debt with telephone calls and emails, whether it's checking your check at the bank account and knowing what you're going to do with the money, or whether it happens to be selecting a way and a decision to make. In everything we do, we acknowledge him. Some Christians a couple hundred years ago used to call that practice, practicing the presence of Christ. Living his life in you. Replacing what I am for all that he is. Living in me moment by moment. Looking through my eyes. Jesus speaking through my lips. Jesus working through my hands. Jesus walking through my feet. Jesus loving through my heart. Jesus radiating out through my life. In every being and place in my life, he is acknowledged. You see, we got a lot of Christians today in America, in churches all across this land that really want to tell people they believe in Jesus. But their life shows no evidence that he has taken over full control. And when that happens, when we trust him completely, when we capitulate completely and we renounce ourselves and we follow him. We see that he makes our paths straight. The word is interesting there. It's only used also in Isaiah. And in Isaiah, it means that the Lord shall literally make a highway. It's not like a little bitty path that will be shown. It's a highway. It's like as you begin to trust him, you begin to walk with him, as you begin to love him, as you begin to follow his ways, then he will show you step by step the highway to go down. We spent a week in Florida at the beach. We drove back on a thursday and we drove left around noontime and drove all the way back and um we took turns driving and this happened to be a time when susan was driving after we had stopped for our first kind of stop um along the way and we were waiting to go to eat supper and we were going to stop and eat supper and we decided to get through birmingham on the other side of birmingham and get some supper, and so we were kind of waiting for all that to happen. And as we got on the other side of Birmingham, about 15 to 20 miles from the exit we were going to stop at, um, I don't know whether you're aware of this or not, this might be something that's important to you if you're traveling uh, through Alabama in the next couple of uh, years, apparently they are repairing every road in Alabama. Every single road they're repairing in Alabama. And so we got stuck in traffic, right? Like, it went from three lanes to one lane in like a mile and a half which looked like 65 every day of the week, all right? And so it was just getting down to one lane. And so we're stuck in traffic there for a minute. And, uh, you know, used to, you just had to sit there. You, had to, you didn't know anything. Maybe you had somebody really cool. Like when I was growing up, my dad had a CB radio in the car, and he could, like, radio some truckers and find out what's going on. But for the most part, you just had to kind of trust. Now we have apps that tell us 20-minute delay. I kind of like before. You didn't know. It just kind of happened, right? But you know, you curve through that construction, and then there's this glorious moment when that sign says, end of construction. And it goes from one lane to like three. And there are a few moments, this is probably overstatement, in life better than when you get to push the accelerator after you've been sitting in traffic for a long time, Right? And so right as you get to the other end, you like, because what happens is the highway literally opens up and there is freedom there. The picture in Proverbs is that when you completely trust the Lord, when you completely trust him, you let worry be out of your life and you trust him completely. It's like that moment when the highway suddenly opens up and there is freedom to live in his presence. Doesn't mean everything goes perfectly, but it does mean... That you're in the midst of living a life that brings glory and honor to Him. And so here's my question as we talk about this dead orthodoxy. People that believe in God but don't trust Him. Have you truly trusted the Lord? With every aspect of your life, every day of your life. Are you out there chasing all this stuff, thinking it will fill your life or your kid's life or your family's life on your own? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He will direct your paths. Let's pray together.